Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and my guest today is Dr. Kunio Hara, author of a new book from the 33rd and the 3rd series called My Neighbor Totoro Soundtrack, a beloved Japanese anime movie released in 1988. My Neighbor Totoro tells the story of two sisters, Satsuki and Mei, as they deal with the separation from their mother, who is in the hospital, and their adventures with the forest creatures they meet called the Totoro. Hara analyzes the film's score and image song collection composed by Joe Hisayashi. The film's catchy theme song, along with the rest of the music, contribute to the film's nostalgic exploration of children's inner lives and the power of imagination to combat the very real traumas of childhood. I'm so glad you can join me today, Kunio. Hello, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited to talk about your book today. You know, I know you as a Puccini scholar, and this seems, at least on the surface, to be a really big departure from your uh, normal work, or at least your other scholarship. So where did you get the idea for this book? So this has been a very interesting kind of a foray for my regular scholarship. So uh, what I write about in Puccini or opera in general is the idea of nostalgia. And as while I was finishing my dissertation and trying to um, think about how to expand this idea, I thought about um, you know some of the things that makes me nostalgic. And you know, I guess I grew up watching lots of anime or films, uh, anime, animated films. So then I thought about yeah, so there's something about the music that might have something to tell more about nostalgia. And that's how I went into um, exploring some of the my favorite films uh, when I was growing up. And these are some of um, films by Studio Ghibli. And that led me into um, uh, watching newer and older Ghibli films that uh, were available. Then eventually I wrote a little kind of conference paper that I presented at different places and that seemed to do well. And at one of the conference, uh, National Conference of um, Society for, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, <laughs> American, sorry, uh, Society for, um, um, I am getting tongue-tied. So um, uh, AMS, American Musicological Society meeting, um, I gave a presentation about a series of um, four um, Studio Ghibli films, uh, the use of music and nostalgia in these films, and um, the editor of the 33 and 3rd Japan, uh, uh, Noriko Manabe, approached me after a talk and suggested that I write something for the series, and that became the direct impetus for this book. Can you tell me a little bit about the 33 and a 3rd series? There's a lot of books in that series, and it's, they're quite unique, and I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah, so 33 and a Third is a series of short books. Uh, this has been going on for years now, and they have more than 100 uh, books. And uh, these are 
small in, in terms of size. It's about, you know, I guess six inches tall and four, three or four inches wide. Um, but it, each of the um, volume originally were intended to highlight a um, famous or iconic uh, album. Uh, so the 32 and a third is a reference to speed in which, you know, um, LPs rotate. Uh, so these were albums of, you know, pop music artists, rock artists, jazz artists. And uh, as the series expanded, uh, they have expanded into international kind of music scene. And there are at least three series. So 33 and a third Japan, 33 and a third Brazil and Europe. And the Japan series um, have explored um, not only famous albums by famous artists, but also um, soundtracks of anime. Um, and also there's another very interesting um, uh, book on uh, the phenomenon of Vocaloid, this kind of a uh, synthetic uh, voice music making software and then the idol attached to it. So um, I do like this series. It's it's compact and, um, you know, for something like what you've done, it seems perfect because it's one movie with a, you know, sort of a circumscribed world, but you can also talk about a lot of things that um, a lot of different topics that come out of your consideration of the soundtrack. So it seems like it's a perfect fit for for that series. I thought so too, um, because of the size, like you say, and also... Um the audience is quite different from the the usual audience I write for, which is mostly academics and other Puccini scholars. And this was a chance for me to expand how I write and how I think about music as well. Yeah, it's it's great. So um, I I guess I I want to sort of start at the beginning. Um, one of the very first things you talk about is the theme song, and you've got some really cute anecdotes about how. Um, you have heard that theme song, and one day some people saw you in a, I think it was a parking lot, and started singing it to you. And it, it's just very sweet. And um, it seemed, and my kids actually, I asked them about the movie, and they started singing the theme song too. <laughs> so, what do you think it is about the theme song, which, as you point out, doesn't, isn't even heard in its entirety till the credits? Yeah. Um, you know, what. What makes that theme song so um, so catchy and really uh, defines the movie in a way, which a good theme song should, but doesn't, you know, in many movies does not? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I just like to kind of, um, the story that I told in the book is that I was sitting in a parking lot, in a super, uh, supermarket parking lot. I was looking up recipe <laughs> before I went to, sh to shopping and I had a little decal of Totoro on my car like a back of my car and i and i had the i guess the window open right so i hear this um like a minivan stop next parked next to me and you know it's there's a uh young man and and his children in the car and they look at my decal and they say oh there's a totoro and they start singing right and i get out of the car and they <laughs> say hi embarrassed a little bit embarrassed but um so so i thought this was a kind of amazing uh, episode because not only the response to this image was music, right? So this made me think, oh, you know, th so there is something about this song and 
um, the way that people associate this film with not only the film itself, but music. And so, so I go into, I, I guess, some detail about the structure, how the song is put together, as well as how the song was marketed. So in Japan, the way that the song came about is through this um, pre-release. So before the film uh, appeared, uh, the composer and Joe Hisaishi and the film director Hayao Miyazaki got together and put together a song album and um, with a collaboration of another poet, uh, Rieko, uh, oh, so, sorry, Nakagawa Rieko is her name. Um, and uh, My Neighbor Totoro, the song, was one of the first songs that came out in the market. And I, I think because of that, the song itself may have been more popular too. But uh, as a song itself, it also played during the you know, promotional um, spot on TV and film theaters for the film, as well as um, yeah, as a kind of a standalone thing that you can buy and purchase. Uh, but I think the song itself has a lot of many, you know, many musical qualities that makes it approachable, memorable. There's lots of repetition in the song. It starts off as repetition of the name Totoro, right? Totoro, Totoro. And it goes on like that for a while. Um, the song has, uh, uh, it's easy to sing and memorable, but at the same time, there are some really nice, um, you know, features such as, you know, some ryth rhythmic complexities and, um, use of different, you know, chromatic chords that I think makes the song not only mm, approachable, but nice to listen to. And there's something about the song that makes it. Repetition, you know, repetition, repeated listening to it makes it more comfortable, perhaps. But also, um, you know, it's hard to say <laughs> to capture the, the, yeah, the essence of the song. Um, yeah, I went to listen to it. I haven't seen the film, I have to say, but I did mm -hmm. listen to the song, and it. Um, it's got one of those earworm qualities in the chorus, right? Which yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but once you hear it, something about about the simplicity of the melodic line, maybe. But it also has this kind of um, sort of wide-eyed innocence about it, especially in the chorus. That that I guess that's what I associate anime mm -hmm. that's designed for children with, like those big eyes and the kind of. Um, uh, there's a certain amount of optimism to it, I guess, that uh, reminds me of just the visual style. And I don't know, I don't know if that's part of the answer or not, but that's sort of what I was thinking about as well when I was reading your book and then listening to, to the song. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think there's um, some. Sorry. <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, yeah, the the song is very optimistic, right? I think it's it's uh, it starts off with this uh, collection of high pitched um, percussion instruments um, in this very active rhythm rhythmic kind of groove that is repeated. It's repetitive. Um, it's high volume. You hear this uh, solo. Um, there are a couple of different versions, but most versions of the recording of the song, you hear a solo vocalist, and her name is Inoue Azumi, and a chorus of men, I think, uh, in the background. 
So I think uh, the song suggests sonically this idea of group singing, right? And I think this uh, is an invitation for the audience to also sing along. And because the the chorus is so catchy, or the kind of a um, hook is so catchy and simple and repetitive, um, it's easy to repeat it, right? It becomes this um, uh, thing that we can all participate. And I think that there's some kind of joy in this listening, but also singing along. So you mentioned the um, this image album or image song collection that was released prior to the movie, which set from what I understand from your book is a pretty common um, marketing technique. But um, it it seems that then that sort of, I guess, uh, pot of music, so to speak, became not only important for the composer in shaping the um, uh, the film's score, but also um, informed the collaboration that he had with the filmmaker, um, uh, Miyazaki. So um, can you talk a little bit about that uh, collaboration and how um, the music informed the film and vice versa? Yeah, so this is a particularly interesting aspect of uh, Japanese animation from this time period, so the late 80s and 90s and on. Um, so this practice was apparently started with Studio Ghibli films where um, the kind of producing team would uh, commission a composer to com- put together a kind of concept album based on the characters or images or keywords or concept. Um, that the in this case Miyazaki put together, um, and then he said she would write music for it, and this was meant to um, for the composer to test out some ideas, but apparently it became a source of inspiration for the um, film director. So in this case, again Miyazaki, uh, we have accounts of him listening to these songs while he was compo- uh, writing and creating the film, right? Um, and in this particular case, so uh, so there's several earlier films that Miyazaki and Hisashi collaborated. The first one was called um, uh, Naushika of the Valley of the Wind. And for this, um, Hisashi was approached by um, the producer who was Takahata Isao uh, to compose the music for the you know, image album from the film. Uh, he composed the image album. They went on sale before the film was created. Um, but in the process, he said, uh, sorry, Miyazaki listened to the film, uh, listened to the, the album repeatedly and then created music so much so that he wanted to hire Hisaishi to do the soundtrack of the film itself. So this uh, image album, the soundtrack was not always the path uh, of creation. Uh, but uh, this kind of became solidified after that. And another film that they collaborated is called The Castle in the Sky, Um, and then My Neighbor Totoro came after that. But for My Neighbor Totoro, um, Miyazaki wanted uh, Hisaishi to not only create an image album, uh, which was mostly in previous cases were instrumental music, kind of synthesized music, uh, or music for the synthesizer. and uh, and for my neighbor Totoro, Miyazaki wanted a collection of songs with text, right? And so what he did was to um, hire 
uh, a famous Japanese um, children's author, uh, children's book author called Nakagawa Rieko. And uh, Miyazaki and his team commissioned her to write several poems to be set at songs and hired Hisaishi to write uh, music for these poems. Miyazaki himself then ended up uh, providing some of the uh, poems for this image album. So there are about three or four songs that Miyazaki wrote the text for. And um, the song that you, uh, we, we talked about earlier, My Neighbor Totoro, is actually uh, written by Miyazaki. Um, this suggests that these three people um, uh, had frequent meetings um, over, um, you know, how to you know write music, but only so. I, I think this collaboration uh, reminded me a lot of actually opera composition, where uh, we have these traces of how this people collaborated through letters and accounts. But it's clear that uh, it was not always the case that the uh, the lyricist or the poet provided the text, the music and composer set the music. No, there's lots of interaction between poet setting the text. And musicians saying, "Can you fix this or fix that?" And then the poet responding, "Yes, no," and and there's some but somebody in between trying to negotiate the, the dynamics or the personal conflicts of the uh, the collaborating team. Um, so what this suggested to me was that uh, music for this film was actually an important part of the film itself, and in in many cases, um, animation, music for animation, um, or Music for most many films um, is a kind of a post-production uh, uh, process where the film is com- has been completed and then the composer is hired or asked to write music for the completed film. In this case, uh, creation of music preceded the completion of the film, and the music seemed to have uh, articulated in this case because there are songs with text, some of the major themes of the film that. You, know, um, you would see later. So I thought this uh, process was an extremely interesting thing to trace as much as I can, it's possible to do. And um, so, and it's kind of surprising coincidence or rather similarity to what I know about how Puccini worked with his librettist, I thought was interesting and fascinating. That is really interesting. I had, um, I had not thought about it in relation to opera until you brought it up, but you're absolutely right. That's quite interesting. Um, and actually that brings up sort of in my mind, your other work that I ha- I've, I'm familiar with, which is on nostalgia in Puccini. And so you also talk a lot about nostalgia in this, did I, the, uh, you talk a lot about nostalgia in yeah. this movie as well. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is the role of nostalgia in the film and then how does the music um, support that theme. Yeah, so nostalgia is um, it's a concept that I've been thinking about, writing about, reading about a lot, and it's it's a fascinating one. Um, the way that I think about nostalgia is that um, so first of all, um, the word nostalgia is relatively new, and it was invented. In around the late 17th century, and there's an error in the book. I, I, there's a typo that says 18th century, but it should be 17th century. Uh, there's a Swiss um, uh, doctor who diagnosed the first case of nostalgia that we know of, and, uh, um, and or first cases of nostalgia that we know of. Um, and, and these were uh, a form of um, kind of a very serious or fatal form of homesickness. 
uh, that he observed among Swiss people. Um, so nostalgia uh, at the beginning was this kind of idea of um, people losing uh, the will to survive or live uh, in this kind of extreme emotional situation where they are separated from their homes, uh, so the homesickness. And over the course of the century uh, or centuries, um, nostalgia transitions into this medical condition, uh, longing for home to something more poetic or more um, literal, uh, not literal, but more poetic, uh, more um, evocative, um, kind of longing for a lost time. And as the 19th century progressed, this idea of nostalgia can be fatal, kind of um, fades the background, um, and nostalgia becomes this kind of a sign of sensitivity or uh, kind of emotional state of mind. Um, and Puccini kind of live in this time when this transition happens or transition recently happened. So in Puccini's opera, you have this kind of collapse of um, longing for time and longing for space, home. Um, and I, I tried to trace that in many of his works. But in uh, My Neighbor Totoro, um, I think music also plays a um, role of nostalgia on one sense for, uh, for, for me and, and many, I, I guess, people of my generation, uh, you know, this film is already 30 years old and listening to music from this film kind of re reminds us of the time when we uh, first watched the film or saw the film or, you know, in the previous years. So music has this ability to uh, inspire past memories, right? And very early on, this um, idea of music as trigger of nostalgia was talked about among um, you know, doctors and scientists already in the 18th century. Um, the very early cases, um, and these are kind of tossed as kind of a strange story uh, in medical discourse. But um, there were cases of um, Swiss soldiers who were mercenaries fighting wars in different places, um, listening to um, uh, something called Ronsavage, and these are the uh, often translated as as a cow herding song. So if you if you can um, if you remember the uh, the third movement of um, uh, Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique, there's this long extended um, English horn, cor anglais solo, right? And that is understood to be this kind of a music that uh, shepherds are playing in the distance. And this kind of music apparently um, um, inspired so much sorrow and longing for home among the Swiss soldiers that they would lose their will to fight or even they get sick. Uh, so this kind of music was banned uh, <laughs> among certain armies. And this was this kind of story that circulated in the 18th century. But I think it's true today that uh, we tend to um, attach uh, music with this magical ability to inspire memory and actually fond longing from the past. Uh, so, so that's why I kind of talked about music in this uh, film as well. Now, th the question is whether music itself, there's something about the structure of music that can inspire nostalgia. And, and I, I try to... Um, kind of uh, explore the idea. Uh, I guess in some sense, um, music... Uh, can inspire nostalgia by imitating musical style from the earlier decades. In this case, um, I talk about how uh, some of these uh, famous songs from My Neighbor Totoro 
reminds or is created uh, specifically to imitate a kind of uh, music that was sung at school. Uh, and, and this is something that I, um, I explore more in the book, but uh, the repertory of um, school songs that was cultivated in Japan um, in, starting in the late 19th century, and these are called shoka. And, uh, and these um, were songs that were meant to be sung at school by elementary or kindergarten students or even later middle school students um, that was easy to sing uh, as a form of music education, right? And, uh, and, and these songs have fairly ex- kind of um, predictable structure. Mostly, most of them are strophic, most of them are syllabic, most of them are easy to sing together as a group. And many of them were actually based on um, European and American models. Uh, in other words, um, folk songs from you know, the British Isles or American tune songs um, were uh, often used in the late 19th century with Japanese text. And this is uh, part of the more longer history of uh, importation of Western music in Japan. Um, but there are many ways in which the music from My Neighbor Totoro uh, is, uh, were inspired by this repertoire of music, or, or rather this idea of a um, group of children singing together and I think to to some degree, uh, this this idea of singing together as if we were children can inspire sense of nostalgia among at least among the adults in the audience. So that's that's one take on um, it. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I as I was listening to your answer, I was also thinking about how um, that you know that association between um, specific. Uh, that are culturally specific and nationally specific experiences and mm. music can be very strong. Like the, the kinds of children's song you were talking about, someone outside of Japan might not have that association with the music because they weren't educated in Japan. But we're looking here at My Neighbor Totoro is a film that is popular worldwide. It's It has been, you know, it's a huge, it's not only important in, in Japanese cult, um, pop culture, but it's um, it's one of these Japanese cultural exports, anime in general, but this this movie in in particular. And you, I think you you talk a lot about that in the book in terms of nationalism and how certain things that uh, certain sounds and certain um, pieces of music seem to uh, evoke um, or or can evoke ideas about nationalism. But because it's an international phenomenon you know, different people are going to maybe um, experience that quite differently. And one of the songs that you you point that out for is Path of the Wind, mm-hmm. um, which some people find to be uh, Japanese, like the melody is somehow sounds Japanese to them and other people don't hear that at all. Can you talk a little bit about that song and sort of um, just the idea of how do you talk about nationalism in a piece of music that is international, but also very much um, rooted in a particular time and place? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. And um, I hope I can answer that because uh, the, the song that you talked about, Path of the Wind, is um, it's another very famous song. Um, 
So in the film, you, you hear this music throughout the film in different guises, but the most memorable scene is when the, the children, uh, Satsuki and Mei, bury this you know, group, bunch of acorn in the yard, and one, one night, Totoro come, a group of Totoro come, and they help, they, they do this little dance, and this acorns grow into, uh, sprout into a gigantic tree, and then you have this beautiful music that you hear. And there are many uh, description of the, this particular scene of the film. Uh, many critics or you know, scholars have talked about the Japanese element in the film. And I, when I talk to other people that have seen the film, they, they do. Oh, um, and, and other people uh, where I live, which is uh, you know, mostly... So I live in South Carolina, and my colleagues are mostly um, Caucasian um, colleagues. And they, they talk about how this... Um, music sound Japanese or exotic, right? And, and there are some qualities to that, to that uh, ex, uh, perception because the music is in this uh, pentatonic scale, a uh, five-note scale that is often found in Japanese folk music and traditional music, uh, but not necessarily in other contexts. And uh, there's something ungainly, well, not ungainly, but it's something um, peculiar about the way the melody progresses and, and this particular uh, piece of music was originally created as a song and this is something not, not many people know about uh, but in the image album image song collection you can listen to this song um, sung by children's chorus um, and it's a beautiful I think a tune catchy um, and very evocative and partly because of the instrumentation uh she uses a lot of again percussion instruments uh mostly i think synthesizers but uh because of the way that the the timbre is really hard to kind of figure out what the sound is like it's bell-like but it also like uh, lots of percussion um uh, drum drums and um it gives this quality of strangeness and what based on what Hisaichi wrote about the music he intended this music to sound to his um, uh, to his ears exotic, rather, which which means that it was meant to sound non-Japanese, but non Western as well. Something more um, uh, close to music of you know uh, other cultures, and to me, this kind of gap between how uh, people in America or U.S. Uh, perceives this music and how this music was intended by, or rather talked about by Hisaishi was interesting because, as you say, it evoked a sense of Japanese-ness to some people, but it, it was um, purportedly, or rather it was um, a kind of um, thought of as being non-Japanese by the composer. And uh, I go back and forth between when, when I listen to this tune, it does sound vaguely Japanese, but to me it also sounds... Um, yeah, strange. And I think that it, this kind of boundary between the familiarity and unfamiliarity, this kind of um, ambiguous nature of the song or the music uh, fits the particular context in which, which is deployed in the film, which is this fantastical scene. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so this is a film that I think was, well, intended... Um, clearly for Japanese cons uh, kind of domestic consumption, right? It, it's about this particular moment in Japanese history. The film is taking place in like the late 50s, early 60s. Um, 
which for uh, people who lived in Japan in the 80s was a moment of kind of a simpler time, right? So in the late 80s, Japan has uh, kind of achieved this, it was at the height of its kind of uh, economic might, uh, you might say, uh, right before the kind of a collapse of 89 uh, later. Um, and um, so, and, and I, I think there was a, I, you know, there's things were plentiful. People had lots of, um, you know, what was wealth was being accumulated very at the rapid pace. At the same time, there's, you know, sense of um, kind of social ills that were surfacing, mostly about kind of a kind of a dissolution or collapse of traditional family structures. And I think um, at this moment, there's something comforting about thinking back at the past in, you know, a simpler time in the past immediately after World War II, but it was um, right before the, you know, at the beginning of the economic kind of recovery. There's something hopeful about simpler time of that period. And then also seeing how, how this particular family struggle with this kind of uh, unstable family kind of a uh, crisis that was happening. Um, so that has gone way away from the music, but <laughs> but this this is to say that the film has a very specific um, cultural significance uh, significance that what meant something for uh, audience not in Jap- not only in Japan but Japanese audience in the eighties right late eighties, but it still seems to resonate with, with a lot of people today in Japan. And as you have told, and as many people have told me, that this is a film that has done very well abroad. And other places. So, um, what what is great about uh, um, for me to write this book was that I was able to kind of trace what I find in this film that's so interesting. And I think um, I think this kind of book, um, writing would inspire other people to kind of understand or try to share why they think the film is important to them, or what why do they think the film is important to the context in which they live, you know, because I think there's, a, like any um, complex work of art, it has many ways in which it can resonate with the people. And I think there are ways in which the film is meaningful to people uh, outside of Japan that are not intended to be as such, but nevertheless so important to kind of uh, think about. You uh, talked in in that answer about how um, the composer had had a specific idea in mind of what he thought he was trying to write anyway, at least that's what he said publicly, but yet it's received rather differently by some audiences, at least in that particular song. And you also quote him as saying that his music is minimal and ethnic. And uh, what what does that mean? That is an interesting label right so he uses this label so um in his uh, autobiography called i am um and he, he talks about his film music style and one is you know he calls a hisaishi melody or this kind of a tuneful music that he writes for many films and then the other is other side of his composition is minimal ethnic and this is a, a word that he uses in japanese um Minimal is easy easier to understand because it, it's about um, as a as a music student, composition student. He was inspired by uh, the music of um, Terry Riley, Philip Glass, um, and Steve Reich and others. Uh, 
And uh, he, early on in his compositional career, he wrote a lot of uh, minimalist compositions inspired by these American avant-garde experimental composers. Um, and you have a trace of that in some of this kind of repetitive um, rhythmic structure in many of his um, composition, many of the accompaniment, even in My Neighbor Totoro has this repetition, repetitive quality that is um, very driven or uh, you know, has a direct connection to minimalism. Now, the ethnic part is, is kind of strange. Not strange, but it's more complicated. And partly because he uses the word uh, in Japanese, ethniku, which is a transliteration of the English word ethnic. So there's a word for ethnic in Japanese, which is minzoku, right? There's a Japanese word for that. But he uh, kind of uh, consciously used a um, kind of English word or evokes the English word ethnic with the word ethnic. And I think um, the word ethnic or uh, ethnic was chosen to denote that this is a kind of um, view at the world, not only from the standpoint of being Japanese, but almost standpoint of somebody in Japan who adopted the way that the Westerners look at the world. Um, so, um, so that's one idea. Another is that um, his word ethnic tend to refer to kind of a non, non-Western, non-classical, but traditional music, musical styles from um, other parts of the world, but not Japanese, right? Um, because um, he would have used, used the word Japanese music or Japanese traditional music or the Japanese word minzoku to describe this kind of ethnic music. So I, I think um, he was trying to evoke... Uh, the kind of soundscape that was kind of, well, that if, um, that was not necessarily um, traditional in the sense of traditional Japanese music or traditional Western music, classical music, but uh, music from other parts of the world. In this case, um, he in earlier kind of exp- exploration, he uses inspirations from you know, West African drummings, um, the kind of a uh, predominance of the bell-like tone, percussive sound in many of his um, songs. And My Neighbor Totoro suggests music from um, Indonesia or Bali or Gamelan, right? So I, I think um, these are some of the um, reasons why he chose the, uh, this kind of label, minimal ethnic. Um, one of the... Um... I guess, types of music maybe he had in mind when he was talking about his music being ethnic was jazz, which um, is important in several of the selections of the film. Can you talk a little bit about um, sort of his use of jazz, but also what is the significance of jazz uh, within the Japanese musical landscape? So jazz, um, yeah, jazz is a, I think there's many, many elements of jazz in this uh, soundtrack, especially in the the uh, the film score version of it, uh, but jazz was um, Japanese people were uh, were very um, taken by jazz early on. So we have uh, you know record of uh, r- rather very, very clear history of jazz reception in Japan starting in the nineteen you know twenties and thirties, and this was a very important genre style of uh, popular music in Japan before World War II. During World War II, um, actually the Pacific War, 
uh, after uh, Japan's um, bombing of Pearl Harbor and when Japan and U.S. went into war, um, jazz goes underground, right? Because um, it, it's a kind of a, become symbol of what, the music of the enemy nation. Uh, but uh, jazz becomes much more, um, you know, recovers or rather uh, uh, survives the war and um, has a kind of a boom or blossoming in during the occupation when uh, after the war in 1945, um, the American occupation starts uh, almost immediately and lasts un- until 1951. Um, and um, there's lots of... Um, American musicians, American GIs who uh, perform jazz and Japanese musicians, jazz musicians especially, were hired to play in these, um, you know, for entertainment of these troops. And um, jazz has this enormous revival in Japan. So uh, this is to say that, um, uh, to say that um, jazz was one of the style of uh, popular music that was um, you know, or already kind of um, has developed into a native style of music uh, by this, t- you know, obviously by the film was released in 1980s, but much earlier. Um, so in that sense, um, it is not surprising to see some traces of jazz in this film. So as as you were talking, I was wondering, it, is... Um, the composer style Hisayashi, if I'm saying that correctly, is his style. Um, uh, is that sort of um, a, using elements of music from a lot of different cultures? So he uses bagpipe, for instance, in one of the songs, and then you were pointing out that he uses um, Balinese influences and and then this jazz influence. Is that typical of composers of his era? That um, you know. Are, are trying to use influences from everywhere. We see that in American composers as well and lots of other composers that, you know, are, are very excited by having so many different musical traditions that they can draw upon that have both become kind of uh, fundamental to Japanese culture, but then maybe others not so much. Um, or is this an attempt by a film composer to make um, a score that would be, Um, approachable by people all over the world for um, a film that's going to be seen by people all over the world? Mm, That is a great question. The second part, um, whether the composer intended this film to sound certain way to have popular appeal. Mm, So the way I think about this film um, is that the film itself was, I don't think it was intended for international release right away. Now, Studio Ghibli, you know, has um, has a deal with Disney later on that suggests that Studio Ghibli wanted to release its product abroad. But Totoro was a surprising hit domestically as well and internationally. Uh, it was, a, you know, people didn't expect this to do well. So, um, and it is... Um, unlikely, and what is also interesting is that he, so after um, so Hisaishi collaborates with Miyazaki later on, right? And he, actually, he composes music for all of Miyazaki's film after you know for, for a while now. And later films like um, Princess Mononoke or um, The Wind Rises are much more um, symphonic in this kind of traditional Hollywood mold. 
Um, and this apparently was his attempt to make the film more, um, he says his attempt to make the film more, um, <clears throat> sorry, more um, approach, uh, well, you know, approachable, appealing to the um, worldwide audience, right? Um, but, but the first point about um, whether this was a common thing among other Japanese composers, and I think that, and, and yeah, I need to do more kind of exploration of this genre of music. Uh, but my, um, the, the little I know is, is that this is the case, right? So I want to say that this is the case. And, and this has to do with something with um, the ability of um, Japanese cons- composers uh, or rather consumers to have access to this market. So Japan is like the second biggest market of um, uh, recorded music. Uh, in some statistics, and and um, and if you go to you know there are tower records in Japan still, and if you go to record store in Japan, the, you know it, it it is full of not only domestic music, <coughs> excuse me, but also um, music from all over the world, including popular music, but also traditional and folk music. And there's a great interest in the music from all over the world in Japan that enables composers then to draw on this all this tradition. And I think there's something to do with this, uh, the development of market in Japan that enables them to, the composers then to um, use lots of resources. That's really interesting. It, it, you know, it, it always amazes me how you start with a small kernel, which in this case is the soundtrack to one movie, and it just explodes into all <laughs> these different uh, aspects, uh, cultural aspects, historical aspects, etc. cetera. Um, uh, I wanted to ask one last question before we uh, uh, start to end this interview, um, and, and that's about um, the theme of isolation in the movie. I, I guess mm. um, I'm keenly aware of that right now. We are, are taping this in March of 2020 when um, we the whole world is uh, approaching lockdown and most of us are um, isolated in our homes much more than we are used to. And um, so as I was reading about the film and realizing that that's a, a big theme of the movie that Satsuki and May are missing their mother who is isolated from them. And I guess May gets lost in, in uh, in the movie as well. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how the music supports that theme of, of the, the rigors of isolation and the sadnesses mm. of isolation? Yeah. So in the film, it is not clear why their mother is in isolation. Um, but, uh, the film itself, but, you know, the writings about the film and interviews suggest that, uh, uh, Satsuki and May's mother uh, is suffering from tuberculosis. And this is a theme that comes back in his later, Miyazaki's later film as well as Rin Rises. There's another character who is diagnosed with tuberculosis and has to kind of um, be in isolation. And this tuberculosis was a, you know, you know in, in very serious illness still, but more so in Japan in this time period in the mid 20th century. And this was not uncommon. Uh, for people to have this kind of experience. And um, yeah, I was, like you say, uh, as I was thinking about this interview, I thought to myself, yeah, you know, we do all kind of feel a little bit, you know, uh, the, yeah, this came into mind as well, this idea of isolation. And um, here we have um, 
the music one part there's a song uh that is included in the image song collection called mother okasan um and also another song called maigo uh, lost child um and, and these two songs especially the song mother really kind of um captures this idea of being away from one's loved one and trying to um you know reach out and turning them so it is a charming song quite sad actually um that is not sung in the the film itself but you hear the instrumental version of this uh when the the girls um visit mother um and the uh, the poetry of the song talks about how you know how I, uh, this person this yeah, protagonist wants to turn herself into a bird so she can fly away to her mother or ju- turns away to the rabbit so he, she can jump into mother's lap and this um a sense of um longing but something that should have been very easy to do like you know getting close to your mother is prohibitive because you know prohibited because of this um illness and and i think um the song that's so it's a very simple language straightforward um poem poetry and then the music of course uh, kind of you know, supports that sentiment now um but but what is interesting is that um you have to um uh, you would not know the kind of a text of the song when you just listen to the film but you have to kind of uh, listen to the song as song and listen to the lyrics to understand the meaning of the song and then that enhances the image what you see in the film and i think that's why this image song collection is so I- important and interesting um um and the other song the the lost child is also used in a similar way that the song itself describes uh this kind of sense of um the fear of losing you know an, another family member in this case i think it's sung from the point of view of satsuki the older sister uh who worries that her younger sister may may have gotten lost or rather she's lost and she can't find her and uh and again this is told in a very straightforward language uh clear to understand in the song and the music returns in the film but as an instrumental number when uh, satsuki is running around the countryside trying to seek out may and you have this very mournful um music that's in the background and you know you you get the meaning of the music but if you had listened to the song itself and heard the lyrics understood it you have a better even more deeper understanding um but how that intertextual element of the score is really interesting because you don't get that very often you know you usually just have the one sonic uh, uh artifact of the film mm-hmm. and you don't have the second one that you can listen to to draw upon yeah. it's quite interesting yeah yeah and it, it and i think it, it's uh, it's almost like how people use um existing music right to borrow music that already exists and puts in film uh in this case they did this process twice almost like twice i have to create the music first and then create the film yeah yeah um so you've finished this big project now the book is out what are you working on now so 
I am working on going back to Puccini and trying to um, turn my uh, dissertation into a book. So this is uh, this project um, should have come after that, but um, uh, the opportunity came. So I was already working on the Puccini book. So I'm, I'm going to try to uh, you know explore this idea of um, nostalgia as a uh, longing for time and space in. Um, as a theme that runs through most of Puccini's work, and I try to kind of trace and understand uh, Puccini's uh, composition from that standpoint. I'm also working on several smaller articles, uh, smaller kind of a chapter in a collection um, about um, more about anime. I'm turning my attention to Takahata Isao, who was a collaborator of uh, Miyazaki, um, and he himself directed several films, including... Um, the including the grave of fireflies which is a it's a very kind of um very very sad tale of uh two young siblings who uh, who try to survive in the aftermath of world war ii and kind of um do not succeed and what what is interesting in this is the fact that this film the grave of the fireflies was um shown simultaneously with my neighbor Totoro as a double bill, right? So this is another interaction between the two. So these are the, some of the um, projects I'm looking at right now. Well, I look forward to getting a chance to read uh, all the work that you're working on now, and maybe we can have another interview when your Puccini book comes out. That'll be fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, thank <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. And once again, this is Kristen Turner uh, with New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. And I've been speaking to Kunio Hara about his book, My Neighbor Totoro Soundtrack. Thank you so much, Kristen. Stay safe. You too. Keep washing those hands. <laughs>